I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. Hello, we're turning back time in Naked Oceans this month as we set out to explore life and death in the ancient seas and ask how looking into the past can tell us about the future of life in the oceans. Sarah pays a visit to some of the weird and wonderful animals that evolved during the Cambrian explosion and I find out how life was almost completely wiped out in the ocean's biggest crisis 250 million years ago. Hello, I'm Helen Scales and with me is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hello, We've also got news from the World Conference on Marine Biodiversity that was held this month in Aberdeen. And in Critter of the Month, we'll be asking another marine expert, if you were a marine species, which would you be and why? They uh, have different forms. Some look like flatfish, some look like caterpillars, some can swim through the water column. They look like nudibranchs. Stay tuned to find out which marine expert that was and which critter they picked. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans, on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Sarah Castor-Perry and me, Helen Scales. This month saw a major event in marine science calendar with the World Conference on Marine Biodiversity being held in Aberdeen here in the UK. This saw a thousand marine scientists and conservation practitioners from all over the world coming together to discuss our understanding of the issues surrounding the importance of biodiversity in the marine environment. So for news this week, we thought we'd bring you a quick rundown of some of the top stories that came out of this bonanza of ocean science. So Sarah, what have you got from Aberdeen? Well, the first story I've got comes from David Barnes and his colleagues at the British Antarctic Survey based here in Cambridge. And they found that the seafloor ecosystem of an area of the West Antarctic Peninsula is suffering from the effects of climate change. Their team was studying tiny little organisms called bryozoans that live on the seafloor as a marker of the ecosystem's response to scouring by icebergs. They also studied the duration of the skin of fast ice that forms on the sea surface every winter. This skin helps to protect the shallower waters from being scoured by the ice flows. So if there's less ice in a particular year due to increased temperatures, then scouring of the seafloor communities will increase. They found that over the last 25 years, the duration of fast ice has decreased with now five days fewer ice coverage every year. There was also worrying data from looking at the bryozoans as well. Since 1997, the chance of a bryozoan colony reaching sexual maturity, which is around two years old, has halved. Obviously, if they're killed before they can breed, this will have a damaging effect on the species. Plus, benthic species like bryozoans are important for carbon sequestration as well. So reduced sea ice coverage can mean an increase in growth, but the authors suggest that this will be counteracted by the damaging effects of the ice scouring. So not a very positive story, really. 
Well, I've got another piece of fairly pure science that came out of the World Conference on Marine Biodiversity from Amy Newman at the University of Western Australia, who presented her PhD research looking into the visual systems of deep water sharks and her discovery that shark eyesight has evolved a variety of adaptations for finding food and avoiding getting eaten in particular depths that they inhabit. She studied the light-detecting cells known as photoreceptors in seven species of deep-water sharks, all caught, incidentally, as bycatch in trawling boats off the coast of New Zealand, from waters between 750 and just over a kilometre beneath the waves. By examining the patterns of light receptors across the retina of these sharks, she found out a lot about how they go about their daily lives, all that way down beneath the waves. So, for example, she looked at the eyes of a very rare shark, the beige cat shark, which has only been found once before, and uh, along with another rare species, the Macmillan's cat shark, have a cluster of light-detecting cells in a spot on their retina that allows them to catch sight of animals sneaking up on them from behind. And being a fairly small shark, they're around 50 centimetres, it suggests that being able to spot a large predatory shark approaching would be an excellent survival strategy. Well, Newman also found that all the species she looked at had a cluster of light-detecting cells arranged to see clearly in the visual field right ahead of the shark, and that would let them detect bioluminescent prey animals that they're prowling after. Well, I think the really interesting thing about this research is how it's using detailed anatomical studies of dead specimens brought back up from the depths to understand more about the lives of animals that otherwise would be extremely difficult to study in the wild as they roam around in the dark, deep sea. Yeah, because obviously you can't just pop down there and examine their eyes in situ. It's not like you can sit them in an optician's chair and go, oh, yeah, I can see exactly the little photoreceptors you've got there. That's really interesting, I find sharks incredibly fascinating things and in fact quite relevant to our theme this week because obviously they are very ancient creatures as well well i've got another presentation which has come from italy from professor ferdinando boero from the university of salento he launched a project with the mediterranean science commission back in 2008 called jelly watch to get the public in italy to monitor jellyfish blooms in the mediterranean They produced posters to help people identify the jellies aimed at tourists, divers and fishermen. The project then expanded to Israel and Spain and is expanding to other areas of the Mediterranean Sea. The idea is to see what species make up these blooms, these large aggregations of huge numbers of jellyfish, where and how frequently they occur. They're a major problem for tourist areas, preventing people from going into the water But they also represent a more worrying trend, sometimes known as the rise of slime, with a shift in the balance of ecological power in the Med. Due to habitat loss, pollution and particularly overfishing, many species of fish are under threat and are dwindling in number. The jellyfish then muscle in and fill the ecological niches left bare, creating what Professor Boero terms a gelatinous sea. Results from the early stages of the project suggest a marked increase in blooms in the last few years, plus a shift in the ranges of some jellies and even the influx of new species previously only found in the Atlantic. As the project is rolled out to other areas of the meds, the teams behind it hope that it'll help us to understand the causes behind these increases in these jellyfish blooms. The idea that jellyfish are increasing in the oceans is something that we've been talking about more and more recently. I think it's really important that we actually get some good understanding of if that's actually happening or if it's just because we're looking more now in the oceans and we're spending more time there and then understanding what's going on in the ecosystem. And and that guy Buero is a bit of a hero of mine, actually, in the jellyfish world. I read up about what he did in his early life when he was 
just starting out his career in jellyfish studies. And uh, apparently one of his big fans um, always has been Frank Zappa, and he decided that he would name a jellyfish after him so that he could meet his hero. And he moved to California to work out there for one of his postdocs, found new jellyfish, named it after Frank Zappa, and yes, he did get to meet his hero, which I think is awesome. So marine biology can get you into the rock and roll world. So, you know, don't forget that. But um, but on a serious note... Um, these jellyfish blooms are just one aspect of changes in the ocean. And, and that's something else that was discussed quite a lot at this conference on marine biodiversity. And um, there was also the latest news was announced about an important new initiative in global conservation. And that is about new plans that are underway now for the intergovernmental platform on biodiversity and ecosystem services. Yep, bit of a mouthful, but that's the IPBES. And it will do for nature what the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, does for climate change. And it's being seen as the big global response to tackle the demise of the natural world. Because there are lots of organisations, obviously, around the world that work on issues of biodiversity loss and the vital services that ecosystems provide us. Things like pollinating crops, mitigating against floods, providing food, all that kind of stuff. But until now, there hasn't really been a joined up global strategy to bring together all the experts information we have and use it to help make decisions about how best to protect the natural world, including the oceans, of course. Well, there was a resolution from the United Nations General Assembly last December, and this month, a plenary meeting in Nairobi in Kenya will see various groups get together to talk about how IPBES will be set up and what its programme of work will look like. And, uh, but things that we should be seeing coming out of the panel include regular expert assessments of the state of biodiversity around the world, similar to the five yearly assessments of climate change that the IPCC produce. And the panel will also help identify and prioritise key areas where more science is needed and provide support and capacity to help build bridges between scientists and decision makers. So it's really exciting to see this happening and I'm sure it's something we'll definitely hear more about as the IPBES gets up and running. Well, you can find out more about the World Conference on Marine Biodiversity and plans for the IPBES at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Now, you may remember at the end of the last series of Naked Oceans, we asked you to get in touch and tell us what you think about the show in our first Naked Oceans listener survey. So a big thank you to everyone who took time to fill in the survey and congratulations to our three winners who all got a copy of Helen's brilliant book, Poseidon's Steed. So hopefully they know lots about seahorses now. Listeners from all around the world got in touch, including from Japan, Poland, Argentina, New Zealand, Zambia and South Africa. And we heard from more males than females. So come on, girls, it's time to get listening. The most popular episodes of the show we've made so far were this January's show about alternatives to overfishing, our Valentine's Day special, Sex in the Sea, and last October's show where we covered the Census of Marine Life Conference. So if you've not listened to all those shows, check them out. They're all available along with our whole back catalogue at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. And we're still keen to hear from you. If you have any thoughts on the show, any questions to ask us about the oceans, then do get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at Naked Oceans. We also hang out at the marine science section of the Naked Scientist Forum. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. And you can email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. From seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms, this is Naked Oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry, and this month we're talking about life and death in ancient seas. 
Now, life on Earth evolved in the oceans around 4 billion years ago, but it wouldn't be life that we could see. The first complex life that we see in the fossil record turns up around 630 million years ago, but they still don't bear much resemblance to anything we see today. I spoke to Ken McNamara, the director of the Sedgwick Museum of Earth Sciences here in Cambridge, to find out more about the weird and wonderful creatures that started appearing in the fossil record over 600 million years ago. But first, he showed me a fossil of some of the earliest life on Earth that didn't really look much like a fossil at all. This rather unprepossessing lump of rock doesn't look very exciting at all to look at, but in terms of what it actually is, it's the earliest evidence of life on Earth. So it's a lump of rock that's about three and a half billion years old, and there's strange structures that are actually made by the activity of microbial communities. You've got the same sorts of organisms today, cyanobacteria, or what you call blue-green algae, making these same sort of structures in lakes and shallow seas today. They were doing it three and a half billion years ago. And really, that's the only evidence of life in the oceans for a phenomenal period of time, for about three billion years. And then at some stage, you had the evolution of more complex cells, the cells of which animals and plants have made, eukaryotic cells. But it wasn't until you're getting much closer to the modern day, six, seven, eight hundred million years ago, that you had these cells coming together and producing multicellular, more complex organisms. So these other fossils that I can see here on the table, are they the first evidence of complex multicellular life? They are. Um, you find evidence there are trace fossils, trails of sort of who knows what made them worm-like things, and then seemingly relatively quickly, around about 600, just under 600 million years ago, you start finding really quite large fossils and complex-looking fossils. This fauna that's known as the Ediacaran, well, I shouldn't say fauna, Ediacaran biota, are either round jellyfish-type things or they're more frond-like structures. And so you can break them down into these two groups. They have, as I say, this sort of resemblance to later forms, but there's something not quite right about them. And the thing that's really not quite right is that I like to call them the, the gutless wonders because you can't see any sign of a mouth, no sign of an anus, no sign of a gut. So there's this big problem. What were these things? Were they animals? If so... How did they um, get their nutrients? How did they feed? So the big question is, are they the ancestors of all later animals or are they something completely different? And that's one of the suggestions that was, has been put forward a couple of times. Um, maybe they were a great evolutionary experiment. So these were pre-Cambrian. So I think a lot of people will have heard of the Cambrian explosion of life where we sort of saw this massive explosion of all different types of body forms of complex organisms. These are earlier than that. They are, yes. They immediately predate the Cambrian explosion. Then you had this amazing change around about 540 million years. There's a relatively sudden change in the nature of fossils. At this time, there were probably sponges and things around, but at the beginning of the Cambrian, there was the relatively rapid appearance of whole groups of organisms that we're familiar with today, like clams, um, worms, even very primitive early fish, early vertebrates, um, much more familiar-looking organisms um, that have recognisable mouths. They have guts, and we even have the gut contents from some of them. We know what they fed on. And so we can see that they were developed this ability to, to feed off plants, but also to feed off other uh, other animals. So it's a completely different um, change in, in lifestyle. And I believe you have some examples here in the museum oh, yeah. of the most 
probably the most famous examples of the Cambrian explosion, which are from the Burgess Shale in Canada. Yes, we have some really good specimens here in the the Cedric Museum because this is where a lot of the original research was done in the last um, 30 years. So we can go and have a look at some of those if you'd like. And so what are we looking at here then? Well, what characterises, I suppose, the Burgess Shale is that their soft parts are preserved, but not only only that, but in rocks at this age, we start finding that animals develop the ability to produce minerals, hard shells or spines, which is something that the Ediacaran animals just didn't do. The advantage of this is that there's a greater chance of them being fossilised, but surprisingly there are a lot of deposits at this age where we have the soft tissue preserved. So we can learn a lot about the whole biology of the animals. One that I really like is this strange slug, worm, whatever-like thing here. It's called Wewaxia, and it has what looks like a whole array of steak knives sticking out of its back. Um, They're wonderful. You would look at them and say, it's got those because it would protect it. If something tried to eat it, it would get a mouthful of these spines, wouldn't taste very nice. It's also got armoured plates. And this is what characterises what really was going on in the Cambrian explosion. We seem to have the evolution of predators and prey. Animals develop the ability to feed on other animals. And this is what basically drives a lot of evolution, predation pressure. And so the predators are trying to outcompete the prey, the prey are trying to survive and come up with new strategies to stop being eaten. So Wewaxia probably did it really quite successfully for a while. And there's another thing here called um, Halkyria, which is like a huge slug, but it's covered with an amazing armour. It's like sort of medieval armour of tiny, um, really hard plates. But we also have animals that are really quite similar to modern-day things. There are crustaceans there that really look quite like um, modern-day crustaceans, and we have a, a reconstruction that we've done of, of one of these. So there are some groups of organisms that evolved at this time and hit on the right you know, body form and really haven't changed dramatically over long periods of time. They're interspersed with some of these weird things like the waxia with these steak knives that lasted for a short period of time, then for whatever reason became extinct. But we know that there were predators around because we have examples of these. And the most spectacular is this amazing thing called Anomalochorus, which is a sort of arthropod, so it's sort of related to lobsters and crabs and so on. Um, And they grew up to nearly a metre long. Huge claw-like structures at the front and amazing mouth part. Um, And one finds lots of other fossils, fossils of things like trilobites, segmented animals, no extinct, but with a big armoured head. And many of these you find with bits broken off them, just bitten, bite marks, and they've survived and they've sort of regrown part of the, the bite mark. So there's a lot of predation going on. Sometimes it was successful, sometimes it wasn't successful. So it's this, as I said, this sort of predation pressure that's driving a lot of evolution. And that's what really marks the beginning of the Cambrian explosion. And that's then sort of continued on through to the, to the present day. So this is kind of the first real example of things that we might recognise today, but also some pretty wacky stuff as well that perhaps wasn't as successful. I suppose it's, it's really an example of evolution in action, things yeah. that have been successful and things that haven't. That's right. It's really what you'd expect. Early on, you're going to have these evolutionary experiments. Some will work, some won't. There's another one that which isn't shown here um, called Opabinia, which is a bizarre animal that had five huge eyes on its head and this long sort of uh, thing coming out the front looked rather like a, a vacuum cleaner. So there were some really quite bizarre experiments that didn't work, but a lot of standard ones that, that did. And so we have these crustacean-like animals that are quite similar to things that are around today. 
And uh, I believe also some things that are perhaps related very distantly to ourselves as well. Indeed, indeed. It's become realised relatively recent times that both in this deposit but also in other similar deposits, there's one in China, slightly older, called the Chenchang fauna. There are worm-like animals, but they have distinctive structures in them, particularly a, a notochord, the sort of precursor of a, a neural spine, that do indicate that chordates, you know, the vertebrates part of, were around at this time. So these were sort of the earliest ancestral-type fish which evolved into amphibians, reptiles, and us. So our, our long-lost ancestors were lurking around in, the, in these muds in Cambrian times. So even back in the Cambrian, amongst the wacky-looking fossils like Wiwaxia, you can find our ancient ancestors. That was Ken McNamara, director of the Sedgwick Museum in Cambridge. And if you check out our website, we've got some great photos of the fossils that Ken showed me. That's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry, and this month we're venturing into the past to explore the ancient seas. Well, so far, we've caught a glimpse of how life evolved and diversified in ancient seas, but there have also been several periods in the past when life has been almost completely wiped out beneath the waves. There have been five so-called mass extinctions in the history of planet Earth where large swathes of life on land and in the sea disappeared. Most famous of these events was the one 65 million years ago that saw the end of the dinosaurs, probably thanks to a massive meteor crashing into the Earth. But the most devastating extinction took place in the oceans long before dinosaurs evolved, back at the end of the Permian era, around 250 million years ago. Paul Wignall from Leeds University here in the UK is a geologist who researches the Permian extinction and I chatted to him about just what went on back then. In a nutshell, everything died, basically. To a, to a first order, it's, uh, you're seeing the extinction of just about everything. Um, about 95% of the species on the level seafloors disappeared. M- most fish groups disappeared as well. So, yeah, it's, it was pretty, pretty devastating. The, it's so big, is this extinction, that we almost take the world back to the Precambrian, the, the time before sort of complex life uh, evolved. And so we have in the seas of the earliest Triassic after the extinction uh, were sort of in a sense, almost dead seas. There was not, there's not much around, and we just have a lot of microbial life, which is very much like the Precambrian world. And what were the groups that we just don't see anymore? Which ones were snapped out and wiped out completely? At the end of Permian, yeah, the groups that we lose completely, um, there's two major groups of corals, and they disappear. And, and although we have corals today, they're not actually very closely related to the Permian um, corals. The, the trilobites are obviously famous fossils, and they, they, they die at this event. Um, and things called sea scorpions, they, they go out at this time as well. They were really big, weren't they? They were, yes, yeah. Um, they uh, they'd managed to colonise rivers and uh, freshwater environments by the late Permian as well, but, uh, yep, they, they don't cross the boundary, sadly, so we don't see those um, ever again. Um, the main shelly group at this time was a group known as the brachiopods, which we do actually have today. If you, I think you can find them in uh, the shores around New Zealand in particular. But in the Permian, they were the most common fossil around, so uh, they're, they're almost entirely wiped out. And in terms of large vertebrate life in the, in the oceans, was there much going on there at the time in the Permian? A very fish group, particularly some armoured fish, much with sort of heavy armoured scales as well, and they, they disappear. A lot of like the famous uh, marine reptiles like uh, ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs, they actually come along after the extinction. So 
following the extinction event, we actually see a lot of reptile groups sort of um, return to the oceans, and you get all sorts of swimming reptiles uh, in the Triassic. Um, but yes, yeah, so they they sort of in a way benefit from the extinction because they radiate afterwards. Life on land also took an enormous knock, didn't it? And what was going on there at the time as well? Yeah, so the end permian extinction, yeah, was, was uh, utterly sort of catastrophic on land. So what, what we see is uh, uh, the loss of all forests at this time. So um, all sort of major trees and things die off. It's also um, the only real extinction event uh, for insects, because insects are obviously, as we know, a very successful group, uh, which are generally sort of diversifying all the time. But that wasn't the case at the end of the Permian. So we lose a lot of insect groups. There's something severe happened on land and in the sea around around the same time as well. So it's we're looking at sort of a whole global ecosystem sort of breakdown. So the Permian extinction really did shake up life on Earth like never before. And the big question is, why did it happen? What was it that made all those species go extinct? Well, over the years, various theories have been drawn up. Some say that it could have been another meteorite impact, like the one that wiped out the dinosaurs, although there isn't too much evidence for that. But as Paul explained, there was something rather spectacular going on at the time that could ultimately be to blame. We've kind of got the culprit. There's a huge amount of volcanism going on at that time in Siberia, so that seems to be the giant smoking gun, so they're trying to then link that volcanism into the uh, extinction in the oceans. And, and this was enormous volcanism, wasn't it? We, I mean, not we can't actually picture in our minds compared to the yeah. kind of volcanic activity we see today. It was enormous, yeah. wasn't it? It was, yes. Yeah. So, the, this is a style of volcanism that fortunately we don't see today, but it's known as flood basalt volcanism, and basically it involves enormous eruptions involving thousands of cubic kilometres of lava. Most volcanic eruptions today involve less than a cubic kilometre of lava, so we're talking about enormous individual flows. Uh, covering large areas of Siberia, but with those flows, there's a lot of volcanic gas would come out as well. And it was that potent cocktail of volcanic gases that's thought to have triggered the crisis in the Permian Oceans. One of the gases spewed out by the Siberian traps, those gigantic volcanoes, was sulphur dioxide, which has various effects in the atmosphere, including forming acid rain. But there was an awful lot of carbon dioxide released as well, which we know from what we're getting up to these days, that that's a powerful greenhouse gas. And there's evidence that back in the Permian, the Earth warmed up. And it's thought this led to oceans becoming very low in oxygen, which made them distinctly inhospitable for most forms of life. If you look at the oceans today, they're, they're sort of extremely well ventilated. There's oxygen available everywhere in the world's oceans today, and that's because they circulate very, uh, very effectively. And the circulation is essentially driven by the sort of temperature difference between the uh, the poles and, and low latitudes at the equator. So you generate sort of cold, dense water at the poles, which sinks, and then warm surface waters sort of travel to the poles, like, like the present-day Gulf Stream, for example. And so back in the Permian, it's that presumably similar sort of circulation was going on. But then if you uh, sort of turn that off, that sort of ocean conveyor, as it's known, um, then you'd, you'd cease to supply so much oxygen to the ocean waters. It's, it's, it's a bit like um, on a sort of giant scale. If you stick a goldfish bowl in, uh, in the window of your house on a sunny day, that, that goldfish bowl will warm up. Uh, the oxygen in the water will decline and if you, your goldfish will probably die. OK, so Helen, we've got this carbon dioxide billowing out of these enormous volcanoes and that would have heated up the planet and turned the ocean stagnant, which already makes conditions pretty unbearable. But what about the other effects of CO2? Did the oceans become more acidic back then as well as they seem to be doing now? 
Well, it's, it's really interesting because the idea of ocean acidification has really only been on our radar for a, less than a decade, really. And it's the scientists studying our present-day oceans and atmosphere that came up with this theory, and they found that over the past 200 years, a tiny blink in a geological time frame, um, the oceans have become around 30% more acidic. As a consequence, we think of all this carbon dioxide dissolving from the atmosphere into the oceans, because as well as being a greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide is acidic. Um, but it was this discovery of recent ocean acidification and concerns about what might be happening in the future that gave geologists studying the past the idea that this could also have happened back then as well. It's actually a very hard thing to test for in back in the, the rock record because uh, acidification, um, essentially the, what it does, it dissolves things, of course. It dissolves shells and dissolves limestones and things. So in effect, by removing something, it sort of leaves no evidence behind. But you can sort of do more indirect ways of looking for it. For example, you can look at to see if the extinction um, was selective. Was it particularly hard on uh, organisms whose shells dissolve easily? And that sort of work is, is really only just being done, so we don't yet know the answer to that. Well, there was one study out earlier this year that provides some evidence of acidification in Permian seas from a team who looked at calcium isotopes in limestone deposits in China. But as Paul said, we're still really a long way off knowing if that's exactly what happened and what kind of impact it had. So the massive end Permian extinction 250 million years ago that virtually wiped out everything in the oceans, can this tell us anything about changes that are taking place in the ocean today and the prospects for the future? Well, it's often said that we're entering the sixth mass extinction, uh, and this one hasn't got anything to do with asteroids or volcanoes, but it's us humans who are to blame for churning out pollutants and greenhouse gases, wiping out habitats and species all over the place. Um, but the Permian extinction was far more catastrophic than even the gloomiest predictions for what we might be doing on the planet today. And it happened over a much longer time frame, tens of thousands of years, compared to the impacts we're having over a matter of decades. But even so, there are definitely some aspects of the Permian extinction that may help us to understand what's going on today and what might lie in store. Acidification studies are definitely one area that will surely benefit from understanding what happened in the past. And, for example, showing how different animals responded to it. And as Paul said, that's really ongoing research, so we'll have to watch this space on that one. Um, and studies of what happened following the Permian extinction tell us how quickly surviving species were able to diversify and restore global biodiversity to its former glory. And that shows us how different groups of animals evolved into new species at different rates. Things like bivalves are uh, they're sort of a bit like the evolutionary cart horses, really. They just plod along. They'll take a long time to recover. Other groups, like, for example, fish, they evolve quickly, and so we, we can predict that they'll, yeah, they'll start diversifying again very quickly if we drive them to extinction. But I'm talking as a geologist here, so when I say something uh, evolves quickly, I say, right, fish probably will recover in a million, million and a half years. Bivalves might take 15 or 20 million years. So we're talking about long timescales, but uh, you can, yes, it's quite easy to predict what will bounce back quicker than say other groups but i suppose that's a geologist's point of view on the uh, yeah. on the planet <laughs> yeah. and uh, right. we they, may they... or may not be around to, to <laughs> yeah. see this as a measure of just how long it takes the the end permian extinction it took about uh you're talking about 80 to 100 million years later you finally got back to the pre-extinction diversity levels so that's, it is a long time <laughs> so, but uh, life gets there eventually but uh, if anything as big as the end permian extinction it takes a long time to recover from
It was thought that reefs took 5 million years to recover after the Permian extinction, but a new study just out in the journal Nature Geoscience shows that it actually only took around 1.5 million years for reefs to reform with multicellular life like sponges and things called circulid worms, showing that as soon as environmental conditions returned to normal, reefs started growing again. But as Paul said, it takes a very long time for life to recover from a mass extinction. And while in the grand scheme of life, things are probably going to go on, from our human perspective, we can't simply sit by and watch life recover from the damage we're inflicting on the oceans today. So efforts to protect the oceans and ocean life are really very important indeed. That was Paul Wignall from Leeds University, taking us back 250 million years to give us a lowdown on the end Permian extinction, the most catastrophic phase in the history of the oceans. Well, we've almost come to the end of another episode of Naked Oceans, but before we go, let's catch up with another marine expert and ask them if they were a marine critter, which one they'd be and why. Here's our Critter of the Month. I'm Kevin Hardy, Scripps Institution of Oceanography. If I could be a marine critter, I would be a holothurian. I think that's a great sounding name to begin with, but they're also cool little animals. They run around and they they, uh, have different forms. Some look like flatfish, um, some look like caterpillars, some can... swim through the water column. They look like nudibranchs. Uh, You see them occasionally uh, solo walking around by themselves. Other times they're in herds. So I just think they're cool. What's exciting about them, I I think, is just their uh, behaviors. They seem very placid, very calm, kind of totally unlike who I am. But they they range a bit. They seem to get along with each other pretty fine, come in brilliant colors. Uh, We've seen them on the Sea of Cortez. We've seen them offshore pretty much anywhere you go, and certainly in the deep ocean, on trenches, they're down there. That was Kevin Hardy from Scripps Institution of Oceanography describing the bizarre but ultimately pretty beautiful holothurians, also known as sea cucumbers. And you'll find lots more marine critters at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, that's it for this month's ancient episode of Naked Oceans. A huge thanks to Paul Wignall, Ken McNamara and Kevin Hardy. Until next time, we'd love to hear from you, so keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Naked Oceans, or send us an email. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. You'll find info about this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by The Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.